You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. So Genesis chapter 24, we remain standing because this is God's word to us as we had prayed for his illumination we are reading the very revelation of God to his people. It's a long chapter. We're going to read all of it. If any of you need to sit down, that's okay. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you come, you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman who to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden from whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, 
please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Verse 29. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man and to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. Behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And then he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he's become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking, in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And so I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, 
The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and, and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, well, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, O oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. And thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Behir Lahai Rai and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Transition. What's that got to do with this love story, right? Transition. It's a word that I think describes well the period that we're in. And it's certainly in a global sense with a pandemic and all. We've heard enough of that, haven't we? But it also applies to the season that many of us are on in a personal level. Some of us are in their final year of high school, soon to transition to college. Some of you guys are transitioning to postgraduate studies, and you guys are involved in internships, and some of you in residencies. Some of you are going from single status to married status, and some are transitioning from the honeymoon phase of your marriage into the daily grind. And some of us have growing families There's a lot of babies around here. Babies are are being born and babies are on the way. Talk about transition, huh? 
But all the while, whether we're going in or, or in some sort of transition or whether we're um, coming out of a season or going into a season, do you find yourself asking the question, where is God in all of this? Where is he? It's not so much about doubting his existence or even your understanding of God's sovereignty, but if we're honest, do we always sense and experience him in all that we say and do? In times of difficulty, perhaps you're even thinking subconsciously, is God really working in all of this? Right now, you're sitting in church. It's Sunday, you're worshiping the Lord, you're in tune. You're experiencing him now. But there are times when you guys are in a place where you're in a different atmosphere and you don't really sense his presence. So the question remains, is God really there? Does he really care? I mean, he may know all the things that are going on in my life, but is he actively right now working in my life? Am I even wrong to admit this? Well, it may comfort you to know that those kinds of questions, those kinds of doubts, they're not that um, unusual. In fact, they're quite normal. And that's why we often hear encouragements and exhortations from God's word to renew our thoughts and our mind with his promises, taking comfort that God is a God who works actively even when we're not. God is a God who works actively even when we don't think he is. You want to talk about a global scale? God is way beyond that. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, there is not one created element seen or unseen that is not under his control, not one. And now even on an intimate level, God is working. Psalm 3, 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So I began with the idea of transition. We all get that. It's not a doctrine per se, but What I had just been describing both by the questions, is God actively working in my life? And the scripture verses that I quoted, that is a doctrine called the providence of God. The providence of God. So sometimes we use the word providence and sovereignty interchangeably. But I'd like to draw a distinction between the two because it has quite some bearing on the passage we have this morning. So first... Sovereignty. As one scholar puts it, the sovereignty of God is the same as the lordship of God. For God is sovereign over all creation. So you have the major components of God's lordship, which are his control, his authority, and his covenantal presence. Now, in other words, he rules and reigns over all, and nothing is out of his authority. That's the sovereignty of God. Now, providence, what's the difference? Well, John Piper, he's helpful here. He actually wrote a book on it. Some of you may have seen it or have it. 
But the actual word providence, it's derived from the Latin vide, which is to see, vide, and pro, which is to or toward. So together it has come to mean to see to it so as to take care of it. That's what providence means, to see to it so as to take care of it. And God has most significantly shown this to Isaac and to Abraham in chapter two. You guys recall this? When Isaac asked, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will see for himself a lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. Another good working definition for providence. This is helpful. Paul Helm says this. The providence of God is the working of God to continually uphold, to guide, and to care for his creation. God, right now, as I'm speaking, is actively upholding you and me and the world that we live in. He's actively working in all the geopolitical events and the policies that are being made. He's actively working in the economic trends, in the mass migrations, in the weather patterns, all of it. God is actively working in it. And he's actively guiding us through his spirit and his word, which is active and living. Amen? And he's caring for us. He is actively caring for us. Now, some of us may be experiencing that caring in a sort of disciplinary sense. But the point is, he loves us and he's caring for us. And his hand of providence is working in our hearts and in our lives most deeply, most lovingly, and most mercifully. So providence and transition. In our passage this morning, Genesis 24, we do see a key transition. It's a continuation of the story of the patriarchs. The transition here, though, is a generational one, right? We, so, we focus now on Isaac, who's Abraham's only son, and his bride-to-be, Rebecca. So you recall last week, Pastor Dylan was preaching. We learned of Sarah's death and how Abraham had purchased a cave to bury his beloved Sarah. And we're going to learn that Abraham and the remaining patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, and their respective wives, they're going to be buried there as well. And so we see transition. Genesis 24 is also a story where providence is highlighted throughout the entire passage. And we're going to see God's providence, not as some sort of high and lofty, aloof doctrine. We're going to see it as something that is experienced even, get this, even in the most ordinary of circumstances. So we begin now in verse 1 of Genesis 24. The scene here is remarkable because Moses, he's the writer of Genesis, he signals transition right from the start. Verse 1, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And what Abraham says afterwards is, At once a declaration of the faithfulness of God. But what Abraham is going to say is also a way to distinguish himself from the surrounding nations. Why? 
because he wants to identify himself and his son Isaac with the God who gave his covenant and his calling to him. So first, this is what he says. He says who the Lord is. He's not some false deity of the Canaanites. He's the God of heaven and God of the earth. And second, he says to his servant what his servant is not to do. Again, a way to distinguish himself from the surrounding pagans. He's not to take a wife from the Canaanites. And then third, he forbids his servant to take Isaac back to his family in Mesopotamia because he must stay faithful to the faithfulness of God and stay in the land that he's called and blessed with. So in verse two, it says, and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now, some of you may be thinking, why under his thigh? It's a legit question. Um, I had that question as well. Now, here's the reason why, because it's the same oath that Jacob had given, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Jacob had uh, had Joseph take. We'll read a little bit that, uh, about that later in Genesis. But why under the thigh? One commentator, he says this, the thigh indicates the procreative power and heritage of the patriarch's position as the source of the family. And here's why it's important as well. It's a reminder that God himself promised Abraham a son from his own loins with Sarah. And it was a marker of God's covenant promises and his faithfulness. So now we know, place your hand under my thigh, verse three, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? That seems like a reasonable question, right? What if the woman doesn't want to come back? Wouldn't it be best to have Isaac himself be the one to seal the deal? But Abraham says this, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now I want to pause a little bit and talk about why he gave the directive in the negative. It wasn't just a prohibition, but what Abraham's going to say next in verse seven, it's one that reveals Abraham's keen sense of understanding the providence of God. Notice how often Abraham attributes the events in his life in the past as coming from the mighty and the caring hand of God. Verse seven, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, some of you, do you guys recall that uh, disclaimer that's often given when you're talking about mutual funds? The one that says past performance cannot be used as indicators for future results. You guys know what I'm talking about? Eh, maybe some. Well, I looked it up and it's an actual rule. The Securities and Exchange Commission rule number 156 requires mutual funds 
to tell investors not to base their expectation of future results on past performance before they invest. That's a rule. However, here's the good news. The providence of God dictates that you most certainly can. You can base future expectations upon past results because of God's faithfulness. Remember, the Lord is the one who took Abraham. It was the Lord who spoke to Abraham. And it was the Lord who swore to Abraham. And get this, a reference again to Isaiah, excuse me, um, Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham no doubt recalls the experience where the angel of the Lord stopped him from sacrificing his own son and provided for himself a sacrifice. That same Lord will now direct his servant to provide a wife for his son. Do you see that? Do you see that? He is trusting God for the future because God has proven himself trustworthy in the past. So now, up to this point, we haven't talked much about the servant, and he goes unnamed throughout this account. But many scholars, including myself, do think, excuse me, many scholars, I am not a scholar, but I do think that he is Eleazar of Damascus. Good, I got a reaction. (laughs) I spoke truth there. But that he is Eleazar of Damascus. He's the expected heir, if you remember, that Abraham names in chapter 15. But what we do know for sure is this, that he is trusted because verse 2 tells us that. And that he moves in a way that is reflective of the character of Abraham and that he is loyal to his master. So let's look at verse 10. And as we do read through this, I want you to notice how the servant, like Abraham, he acknowledges the provision. He acknowledges the steadfast love of God. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. So notice the number of camels, 10, and all sorts of choice gifts. The servant is expecting success. He is expecting success because he's not being presumptuous. Because remember, he was Abraham's servant. So who no doubt he experienced and benefited from God's providence and his care to Abraham he too experienced that. So now after a 450-mile journey, it's about how long it is, he arrives in Mesopotamia, verse 11, he says, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water, and he said, listen to his prayer, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may be, that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The servant here 
knows that it is the Lord who has appointed a wife for Isaac. In other words, this is a decision that the Lord has made. And therefore, it's not a mistake. It is the right decision. And I love how the Lord answers prayer. Look at the very next verse. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And so she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him, her, her, gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw cam- uh, water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. Verse 21, notice, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. The word gazed is important here. In in the Hebrew, it contains the idea of being stunned or astonished. And some translations use the word wonder. So the idea here is that he's at once marveling, like, but he's also discerning. It's as if he's saying, is this really happening? Yes, this is really happening. Now, before we move on, I think it also important um, for us to see what Rebecca is doing here. Um, some commentators and scholars do say that Rebecca, she's a mirror of Abraham. So think about it. She's hardworking. She's hospitable, as we'll soon see. And she's willing to leave her homeland based on the promise of God, exactly as Abraham did. Now, about the hardworking part. I googled, how much water do camels drink? And the answer, up to 30 gallons a time, at a time. 30 gallons of water. Now, let's be conservative here. Let's say that each drank 20 gallons of water. So let's do some maths here, all right? 10 camels times 20 gallons equals 200 gallons. 200 gallons. And you notice in the text, Rebecca says that she quickly ran and she went down to the spring and back again and again and again and again until they finished drinking the camels. 200 gallons of water. So you're probably thinking, geez, didn't she get any help? These guys are just standing around watching her going back and forth, back and forth. What we'll see in verse 22, that she was rewarded quite nicely for her work. When the camels had finished drinking, verse 22, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And that's when he asked the question, please tell me who you are. She went ahead and identified who she is. And then she responded that yes, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and we have room to spend the night. Success. This is the one. Kinsman of Abraham, hardworking and hospitable, 
just like her master, or his master, excuse me, and also like Abraham. The servant knows how all of this has happened, and he responds as only he can. Verse 26, the man bowed his head, and he worshiped the Lord, and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. And again, he acknowledges the providence of God because he says that it is the Lord who led me. It is the Lord who led me to, in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So these next uh, set of verses in verse 29, we're going to be introduced to a character in the story that's going to feature prominently in the life of Rebecca and Isaac's son, Jacob. And that's her brother, Jacob. And Moses, again, the writer of Genesis, he does give an indication of what Laban is like in verse 30. So let's read on. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he, the man, was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in. O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. So keep in mind, the servant and his men, they traveled the equivalent of what's the distance from here to Sacramento by camel, and it was at least a two-week journey, minimum. So no doubt he was ready to get cleaned up. No doubt he wanted to sit down and enjoy a meal, especially after it was confirmed that he had found the one whom the Lord has appointed for his master's son. But we're going to see something pretty remarkable here. We're going to see the servant's loyalty to his master and his commitment to complete the mission. Verse 33, Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And then he, Laban, said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him Again, a keen sense of God's providence. And here's what's important. The servant also, he's very thoughtful in the way he describes what the future will look like for Rebekah. He has given him, Abraham, flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And here's the clincher, verse 36. And Sarah my master's wife bore a son to my master when she was old and to him he has given all that he has. And so the commission in verse 37. So my master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And so he continues on to say what we had just read. So we're not going to read the whole thing, but I want us to understand why Moses included it here. There's a lot of repeat information, but it's repeating for a purpose. 
first of all, it's an amazing story. But if you remember, it's a testament to God's faithfulness. In our call to worship this morning, in Psalm 105, it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. God's love for us does not get old. We can talk about him time and time again. His mercy endures forever. Amen. And so the servant, he concludes his telling of the wonderful work of God in verse 47. He says, then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose. Permission, perhaps, for those of you who like that. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now the proposal, listen to it in verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love to my master and faithfulness, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. It's compelling. It's persuasive. And it's true. Rebecca's father and his brother, they had to respond. And they too rightly acknowledged the source of this blessing. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And again, the right and beautiful response of worship. And Abraham's servant heard their words and he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. So what Moses is going to describe next is evidence of both what Abraham did in not holding back any resources, but it's also, again, as I mentioned, the expectancy of the servant who undertook this commission. He gave Rebecca's family costly gifts. You remember that. And then furthermore, we see that even in a last-ditch effort in the next couple of verses, Rebecca's family is trying to stall his mission. But the servant was adamant that he would leave the very next day to return to his master to give his son his bride. And note here in verse 58, the willingness of Rebecca, the willingness of Rebecca to be joined to her future husband, much like Abraham was willing to leave the land of of, um, Ur and sojourn to the land of Canaan. Verse 58, and they, her family, called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So now we come to the last part of the story. The long-awaited journey has come to an end. The anticipation of Rebecca had no doubt been building up, thinking of her future husband and her new life in a new land. Now remember, Isaac's mother, Sarah, had died. 
And so Isaac, with no wife, has been contemplating. He's been thinking about what God had promised to his father Abraham, who himself is nearing the end of his life. So Isaac knows what's at stake. And his anticipation, too, is building. Verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahai Ru'ai and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The patriarchal story transitioning from Abraham to Isaac focuses, as we've seen, on the providence of God. The providence of God coming through in the most extraordinary ways because they were the most ordinary events and actions. Did you see that? Did you notice that? There's a commentator, Alan Ross. He says this, The narrative in Genesis 24 records no word from God, no miracle, no prophetic oracle, It does not even restate the Abrahamic covenant, although it does allude to it. This event, chapter 24, is unique in Genesis, yet it is realistic for believers today. Why? Because of the anticipatory role of faith. The role of faith. The role of faith here The commentator says it's expressed in a personal prayer and it looks outward for evidences of God working. You see the statement that Abraham made at the beginning of this chapter in saying with confidence that God will send an angel of the Lord before his servant to find a wife for Isaac. That's one of faith. The prayer that the servant prayed was one of faith. The desire for Rebecca to leave her family and go to a strange land, that was one of faith. And again, it all took place in the most ordinary ways. But again, these were actions of faith. So the question is faith in what? Faith in faith? Or faith in whom? You see, the story of Isaac marrying Rebekah, it wasn't just so he could continue the line of Abraham, which he did, and be his heir. And it wasn't just so he could continue and his son Jacob would then be his heir. It's so much more than that. It was pointing forward to the line being preserved so that the promise in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would continue. It would continue on through Israel so that 
2,000 years later, listen, as it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, listen to that language, we, that's us, his church, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. You are an heir through God. You see Abraham in the story. He gave his son Isaac all that he had. All that he had. He didn't hold back. And all he needed to do was find a wife for his son to preserve his line, to be his heir, as we talked about. And he gave him all the resources he needed. But God the Father, in order to secure our inheritance, he gave up infinitely more. God's providence. God's providence was at work in Isaac's life then to secure us a present hope now that guarantees a future reality. I'm going to say that again. God's providence was at work in Isaac's life then to secure us a present hope now that guarantees a future reality. That's what was happening when Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of Sarah to love her. It was pointing to a better Isaac, Christ himself, securing eternal life for us on the cross, cleansing us from sin, being raised up for our justification so that we may be made ready for him at the end of this age. Listen to this hope expressed in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. But the focus here is Christ. Listen closely. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it is, verse 32 of Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's us here, his church. So what about you this morning? What is holding you back from believing in Christ? Are you still thinking that this is a story that took place back then and it's just a part of distant history? Are you thinking that My sin is too great. My shame 
is too deep. This cannot apply to me. Or as I asked earlier, are you thinking, I don't see God at work in my life. My problems are too great. I've suffered so many losses, both relationally and loved ones who have passed on. I'm exhausted. I want you to listen to the providence of God. I want you to see the hope that he is offering you today. Romans chapter four, verse 20. He's hearkening back to Abraham. Romans chapter four, verse 20. No belief made him Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Don't miss this. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but what? For ours only, right here, right now. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ crucified for our sake, resurrected for our hope. And here's what that means today. Romans 5, we continue on. Paul makes this point. Therefore, since we have been justified by what, church? By faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, hear the word of God to you this morning. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Rejoice in this church because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you believe this? Will you place your faith and trust in Jesus? His spirit is calling you to trust him.